Hey guys, how you doing? Welcome back to the official Yellowstone podcast. I hope you had an awesome Thanksgiving. Hope you got to spend it with family. I hope it wasn't quite as contentious as uh, dinner around the uh, the Dutton dinner table. I hope it was a little more peaceful. Less stuff was thrown. I am so, so, so glad that you are able to join us again. Season five of Yellowstone, it's getting crazy already. It's getting nuts. Uh, it's getting explosive. And we have an awesome show for you today. So stay right there and we'll be right back. Jeremy Renner returns to Paramount Plus for a brand new season of the original hit series, Mayor of Kingstown. My job is to create a balance, avoid a war. From executive producer Taylor Sheridan, co-creator of Yellowstone. There's some new players in town and they brought the flag. And Antoine Fuqua, director of Training Day. I know it's always been a war zone, Mike, but this is next level. The mayor is back in business. Are you warning me? You're going to find out. Mayor of Kingstown. New season streaming June 2nd, exclusively on Paramount+. Plus. CBS Friday and streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Fire's coming to you! Don't miss TV's hottest show, Fire Country. This is a high-complexity rescue with a low chance of success. Follow the rules, and you shave another day off your sentence. Critics call it explosive and pure entertainment. I'm a fella. I'm not fit to be anything else. You're not an inmate. You're a firefighter. Bring it on. Fire Country. New episode Friday, 9, 8 central on CBS and now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Jen, how was your Thanksgiving? Where'd you spend it? Um, I spent my Thanksgiving in Texas. Um, we were out here for reasons, you know, maybe show related, maybe not. And I ended up staying out here. I have acquired a camper, Jeff. I am very excited about the camper. So I was here getting the camper sort of fixed up. And uh, I hung out with uh, my buddy, Lindy, who needed, who needed an extra hand. So that's what I did. What about you, Jeff? I feel like you had an eventful one. I had an eventful one, but I just want to I want to dig in real quick here. So tell us about your buddy, Lindy, because Lindy uh, is, is a bit of a legend. That's right, Jeff. Thank you so much for starting what I plan to start, which is basically a promo to get her on the show. Um, so Lindy, Lindy Birch is anybody who knows the cutting horse world, uh, knows Lindy Birch. She's one of the best cutting horse trainers of all time. Um, I cannot give the list of the things that she has accomplished because there are so many. She's amazing. She's really a, a, a walking, living, breathing legend. Yeah. She's still competing. Is that right? She's still competing. Um, and at, at an incredibly high level, uh, she has no interest in stopping. And she's really one of the most inspiring, inspiring people I've ever met. And I can't, I can't wait for her to listen to this episode uh, when it airs. So Scott, you can't cut any of this out. She's got, she's also an incredible contradiction because she's got the sort of rough, rough and tough edges of a teeter, but also the incredible sort of kindness, generosity, refinement, and sort of elegance of, uh, of some of the more... Of, of not, you know, her. verbally, verbally right. capable Yellowstone characters. That's correct. She, refinement is the word. I mean, she's incredibly, she, she reads, she's a voracious reader and um, her taste in wine is so expensive that I will never be able to purchase her wine. 
as a gift. Um, I thought $30 was very expensive for a bottle of wine. That was like, I'm really going to splurge here. And yeah, I want to impress the people at this party. I'm going to show up with a $30 bottle of wine. That's exactly how I feel. Oh, no, I don't give $30 bottles of wine away. I give like $12 bottles of wine away. <laughs> I buy myself the $30 bottles of wine. That's for mama's secret stash. And then drink the whole thing over the course of an evening and start talking to my television. Um, she, yeah, yeah. She, she would never touch a $30 bottle of wine. Listen, also, I, one thing I just want to, I want to check on real quick that you, you buzzed past when I asked you how your Thanksgiving was is you've got a, you've got a camper, you've got an RV. Talk, yeah. talk us through it. Okay. So how this all came about is, um, we were shooting Yellowstone and you weren't there. And by the way, no more jokes about how it was so much better without you. It was very sad without you. And the audience is sad. Everyone's sad. Um, and there was a lightning storm. And if for people who don't know, when there's lightning, you can't shoot for like a half hour from that, you know, moment of lightning. So we were on hold, basically. And because we're shooting out on this ranch, you're not allowed to walk from one place to the other because you can get electrocuted. So I was stuck with Bingham in his car, which isn't a horrible place to be. And I was tired. It was late at night. And he goes, why don't you go get in the camper that he has on the back of his truck? And I thought, no, I'll get a little claustrophobic. And I went back there and it is the coolest thing I've ever seen. Um, it is absolutely beautiful. It's made by Capri campers. And so I started working with um, the guy who owns Capri, who is the nicest guy in the world. They custom build all of these things. And um, I've, I'm a huge road tripper. And now I can, I can live out my dreams of sleeping in my car. This is incredible. This nomad lifestyle, because this is it's it's kind of you know it's interesting. The more sort of professional cowboys I talk to, the more folks that compete in the cutting world, in the reining world, in the rodeo world. So much of this lifestyle is like being a touring musician. You're traveling around the country to compete. You're traveling around the country. There's this kind of beautiful sort of circus mentality. It's not so different from being an actor, which can also be a very sort of nomadic lifestyle, you know? So what a cool thing. You're really embracing it. Yeah. And I was just going to say, like, Jeff, like that nomadic lifestyle does parallel so much with actors. And I feel like in the same way, I don't know, this is really a question for you. I found the more nomadic I become, the more you work, the harder for it is for me to sort of be home, that it sort of changes, or at least there's this incredibly weird re-entry period when I get back. Um, do you, do you ever experience that, Jeff? I think that means that you're like an actual sort of, you know, crazy person, cowboy rodeo nomad. I think that means this stuff is actually like in your blood at a part of you. Cause to be honest, I spend a lot of my time on the road, simultaneously very grateful to be working, which is a miracle and a blessing, and I feel very lucky, but also just wishing I was back home because I miss my, you know, I miss my uh, my beautiful partner. I miss our little cat. I miss our crumbling house in uh, Brooklyn. Yeah, so so personally, I, I, don't, I don't quite have the, uh, the call of the wild that uh, you're expressing, <laughs> but maybe, maybe one day. I definitely, it was definitely a moment where I was watching... Uh, the Chloe Zhao movie Nomad, which is amazing. And for anybody who hasn't seen it, you should see it. And there's a great book uh, that it is. Nomadland, yeah. Nomadland, yeah, sorry, sorry. I like to get titles mm -hmm. wrong. Um, and as I was watching it, I really thought, oh, this looks like heaven. <sighs> oh. 
Francis McDormand, that, that, it's one of the greats. Francis should be on our show. Absolutely, yeah. Francis, that, I feel like I feel like after the Helen Mirren Harrison Ford announcement, it's very fun trying to put together you know pairs of Duttons for future iterations of the show because Francis McDormand, you know Matthew McConaughey, mm-hmm. Francis McDormand, The Rock. <laughs> I think that's exactly right. That's a match we've all been waiting to see. I know. So listen, uh, this week, episode four of season five of Yellowstone. Yeah. Jeff, where do you think we should start? Well, let's start where the episode starts, which is Beth Beth facing the consequences of her impetuous decisions in episode three. So the episode opens with, uh, with Beth in jail. Right. Sitting on the mattress. There's that great interaction between her and the other woman in that cell um, that I just, I sort of, I don't know. I thought that moment was pretty wonderful. Yeah. It's amazing watching Beth. You know, you, you find out pretty quickly, Beth kind of finds her people. There are, you know, it seems sometimes like Beth wants to fight everybody, but as she sort of, you know, is a tornado careening through life. She does bump into her people sometimes, and it's always fun to see people that she sort of takes a quick liking to. Yeah, and she also, she also, I feel like she has, she has this quality where she is such a clear, she's one of the most clearly defined characters I've ever seen on television, and yet she's entirely mercurial. And sort of, we find out who she is based on these interactions and we'll get to it later in the episode, but you know, um, that, that moment later in the episode in the car with the little girl, you know, reflects this, we see this other side of Beth and it changes on a dime. And, um, Kelly Riley also has this like incredibly mercurial nature, uh, which is why she's such a brilliant actor in the first place. Yeah. that's what I think that's, you're exactly right. That that's also like Beth also is growing and changing over the course of five seasons. Right. And I think her relationship to Carter, her relationship to Rip, her sort of experience this season of parsing through her memories and looking back at a long life of, uh, of, of, you know, careening from target to target, destroying everything in her path. It really feels like this season She's examining that. And, you know, right. nothing articulates that uh, that 180 degree switch more than beating the shit out of this woman last night, which gets her thrown into jail and then waking up and having sort of a nice, pleasant kind of you know pre-coffee conversation with her cellmate. <laughs> yeah. So so and so so Beth wakes up in jail. And then, of course, who does it fall to to uh, to rescue her from jail? Uh, the last person in the world who wants her out of jail, the person in the world who probably most wants her to stay in jail, right? which is, of course, Jamie. Uh, so it, it falls to Jamie to uh, to bail out his sister. I, I, I mean, maybe I'm crazy here, but I sometimes, I really have a soft spot for Jamie. And uh, I, I find that, I find that dynamic really, really fascinating and incredibly painful. Yeah, it's excruciating. It's watching somebody who it feels like his whole life he's kind of tried as hard as he can to do right by his family, but over and over again he winds up at odds with his father, with his sister, 
you know, he, he, it really does feel like he has this moral compass, this sort of strong personal code. Mm -hmm. And he maybe does authentically have the same goal as Beth, the same goal as JD, but he approaches it from a completely different sort of tactical perspective. And uh, that, that puts him at odds with them over and over again. I love the, I don't know if it was the cop or the sheriff or whoever, you know, he says he saved him a lot of paperwork. Um, which I feel like is is something that Taylor hits on a lot and is a theme throughout this whole episode in terms of just like avoiding red tape or like not and not avoiding it in a way that's like malicious, but it's just like there's there's so much red tape that gets in the way of just immediate process. Um, and I and I think that Taylor offers up really good arguments for and against it. And he does that with Senator Perry at one point in the episode where like, you know, you know, John fires his entire team, right? We see later in the episode and it's sort of great. And his whole thing about like not going to the educators uh, luncheon because there's no educators there. It's a Thursday. But then when he sits down with Perry, she sort of makes an argument as to why some of that stuff does matter, you know, and kind of gives him a lecture on, you know, not a lecture, but she teaches him a bit about temperance. Yeah, this is a fascinating episode for John's, you know, short, political career because it feels like exactly as you're describing he starts by sort of ripping down this red tape by sort of you know undoing some of what he might describe as administrative bloat you know him and clara sort of cutting a swath through the many hangers on attached to the uh the office of the governor and then he has this really yeah this beautiful conversation with you know i think governor perry is maybe the only politician that John would ever listen to. Right. <laughs> like Governor Perry is the only politician that John is willing to sit down with and can actually sort of get through to him. And she says to him, she says, uh, this, this, this governorship is as much your legacy as the ranch is. Right. And that feels like a really interesting moment and a bit of a transition and a change in the way that John is looking at this. It, it seemed, you know, in episode one of this season, John says, hey, the only thing that matters, every decision we're going to make, we're going to make on the basis of protecting our ranch, you know, which is like the definition of political corruption. He's like, hey, I'm the governor and all I care about is my own right. property. <laughs> no. And she throws on this thing to like that ties into that where she says, you know, it, it comes up whether or not he can, you know, that basically he can pardon Beth, that now that, you know, He's had honcho. There are a lot of things that he can do, um, but that it would be political suicide. Uh, and it feels like um, a potential promise of problems to come because we know that the Duttons do get themselves in, in quite a bit of hot water, that that is something that could be very helpful for his family. Um, but in a way, it would be the end, you know, of his of his legitimacy. And I don't my my sense is that John probably doesn't give a crap about his political career. But I do think that he cares about things and people and Montana. And and I do think that the Dutton name means something, you know, not to get too crucible, but his name, you know, the honor of his name. Absolutely. Yeah. And the, and the land itself, it feels like this is an episode where he's starting his He's recognizing that his responsibility broadens beyond just his own ranch, and he has a responsibility to 
the ranches that surround his, to the sort of citizens of Montana, to the land of the state itself. And that's a fascinating question for John since the beginning of the show, is who do who does he have a responsibility to? Is it just his kids? Right. Is it just his kids and his grandkids? But along the way, we've seen him go out of his way to help the people around him to sort of stand up for and protect this way of life. It's funny you say that the Duttons have a way of getting into hot water. It's really like hot water kind of seems like Beth's natural habitat. Yes. You know, like Beth kind of thrives in hot water. So so it is fun to see, as usual, his his children careening about creating these issues that he's going to have to decide whether he'll use his political office to save them or various other means. You know, so, so John as he listens and sort of uh, absorbs wisdom from Governor Perry, he's also got this incredible, this is an episode where, so Casey and Monica's son, newborn son, mm-hmm. is 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 buried in this episode. And that plot line has been so, you know, challenging, uh, painful. It, it's been obviously a, a real crucible for Casey and Monica, but also there's a ripple effect. You know, I think all the characters close to them are, feeling the effects of this. And Monica particularly, you know, Monica and and John have had such a contentious relationship over five seasons now. There's this beautiful conversation between Monica and John, which feels like maybe for the first time (laughs) they're connecting in a more sort of instinctual kind of human animal level. And John says to Monica about her, uh, her son, her departed son, all he saw of this planet was you, and all oh. he knew was you loved him. That made me cry. Um, that, I mean, even you just saying it, I got a little verklempt. Um, it, 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 that was like, I mean, that's an example of like, just Taylor at his best always, you know, just he gets to the heart of things in such a profound way. And, and tying into that, he also shares this like sort of sentiment, which is so true. Um, I think the, I forget which character says it, but that grief isn't, you know, that grief isn't meant to be shared. And there's a few, there's a sort of theme that runs on in this in the episode, which is how isolating grief is, you know, even if a bunch of people lose the same person and I can speak from my own experience, like having lost somebody incredibly close to me, you know, when I was very young and having family, we all grieved this person, but it was, it was so isolating. There's, and, and I, and I remember feeling that astutely as a kid that grief is a totally solo experience and that celebration is a group experience. Um, and Taylor, you know, Taylor says comfort, you know, he talks about using comfort and, 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 um, I thought that was really beautiful. Yeah, it's another example of the way the show will kind of soar up to these lofty heights, these situations, contexts that are so complicated as to be unrelatable. You know, John's the governor of Montana trying to save his billion dollar ranch. But then it also takes you down to these, the thing that is so fundamental to the human experience, loss, change like that's something that everybody watching the show relates to all of us making the show yet there's this kind of fundamental deep down 
in your heart sort of feeling that that this writing and you know that this uh, story also really taps into I, I found myself very affected by it as well absolutely and the same way that like Taylor hits on this theme of like let's just call it cutting through the bullshit you know whenever he when he hits these moments that you just talked about it also reminds you that the other stuff is bullshit. He's cutting through bullshit on so many levels. And also like, if you know Taylor as a person, he is somebody who cuts through bullshit. Like, you know, there's there's no artifice there. Um, and, but those, again, w- w- we talked about that moment in the hospital sort of cutting through, you know, showing you what your priorities are. You know, the moment in the hospital, uh, with Monica at the end of the episode before. And then this, yeah. you know. Yeah. Yeah. Very, very powerful, affecting sequence. And then, you know, t- you always know with Taylor, the highs are always going to be followed by brutal lows. But then after the lows, he usually gives you a nice pickup. Uh, so so I love how this episode ends. <laughs> this episode ends with uh, John, you know, exhibiting some really class A1 political corruption and basically releasing Summer from jail into yes. his own custody. <laughs> Where then Beth has a run-in with her, I believe in the kitchen, and she's like, which is a yeah. just like a fun and fabulous moment filled with zingers. Uh, yeah, those two actors are so fun. We got to talk to Piper a little bit this week, uh, but it's so fun. I love those scenes with, with Beth and Summer. And uh, this episode also promises a lot more to come because Summer being out of jail and staying at the house yes. means you know that those two are going to be butting heads. So in this episode, there's this big hole sequence, uh, which it's when we're pushing cows. There's a sequence where we're pushing cows down the road. There's cars sort of stopped in the middle. We're going to go help a rancher with his branding. Um, and this honestly should be another episode for another day that was about a 14 hour day maybe more in wisdom montana we had 150 pairs so we had 300 cattle those were cows that needed to be branded tagged castrated um and vaccine uh, inoculated right um all of that happened it was a huge epic day in in one of and, and Wisdom Montana is one of the most beautiful places um, in the world that will never be uh, become trendy the way Joshua Tree or Marfa has because the elements are brutal. Yeah, what an incredible was this was this your first time branding? I had I've been to a branding before. I have some friends who have a ranch in Mexico, and I sort of kind of stood by and helped out with that because I wanted to get a sense for that. We were brand, we were branding, uh, full grown cows, um, that time. And this, this was my first time branding though. And it was actually my first time healing and dragging the cows. So it was my first time healing too. Um, and fun fact, I did, I knew that we would be branding for real. Uh, I did not know that we would be tagging and castrating for real. And these were cows again, just to make it clear to the audience and to PETA, these were animals that needed to have this happen. We had professionals there doing the heavy working, uh, like the castration. Um, but we roll on take one. I have flanked that calf to the ground. So, you know, it's uh, it's balls are near my eyes. And 
all of a sudden I see balls flying, testicles flying <laughs> through the air. Um, and, and a look of shock and maybe awe was on my face. And yeah, and you're describing you're, you're, them. I'm kidding. Um, you're using a lot of terms that are a little bit inside baseball as a sort of, as a person who's now spent, you know, five years really digging into this and has friends who have a ranch in Mexico. So I'm just going to do a little cowboy glossary for you real quick. So healing means you're up on a horse, you take a lasso, throw it and catch the back two feet of a cow, in this case, a calf. Dragging means you then pull that rope taut and your horse walks away from the calf such that it's pulled to the ground and sort of tugged along by your uh, by your uh, horse. Kind of, it, It's sort of stretched out on the ground. Flanking means a couple of cowboys grab that little calf, who isn't so little, weighs, you know, 200, 250 pounds, so um, and sort of do a kind of tag team jujitsu move where you flip it to the ground and pin its legs. It's a very, it's an extremely sort of mixed martial arts style of movement. Um, I think, so that's healing, dragging, and flanking. And then you actually, I think you dug into the the literal uh, castrating pretty yeah, so uh, accurately I, I, in, in I, sufficient I, detail. I like to lead into that. Um, but you know, <laughs> look, Taylor writes in the script and it is true that the whole thing happens, you know, they are, they are branded, castrated and vaccinated in f- about 15 seconds. And that is true. It's, and they're, yeah, so it's, it's a well-oiled machine. It's super, it's super fast. It, it, yes. Yeah. Mm. Um, it, it's, yeah. it's a pretty remarkable thing to witness. And these guys, these cowboys that do this, you know, who we do it alongside, um, have done this their whole lives. You know, this is something that I, when we were down, uh, I went down and helped with a branding at the sixes in the spring. And uh, guys, you, you bring out your nine-year-old kids, you know, who are going to flank for the first time, six-year-olds. People, this is a sort of tradition. It's a part of this way of life that people have been doing for more than 100 years. You know, this this is a particularly, you know, the science has changed and improved in some ways. They're being inoculated with, you know, incredibly advanced veterinary science mm-hmm. to protect them against yeah disease and keep these cows healthy. A lot of what you're doing this for is to keep these cows healthy as they uh, age and get older. Um, and it's also really, it's, you know, it's the definition of free range cattle. They live most of their lives just out in these massive pastures for the- uh, every now and then. Yeah. yeah. Every now and then you got to go grab them and, uh, and give them some medicine. Yeah. <laughs> and people have been doing that for like 150 years or longer. And and for the people who bucked at it, when they like, when I talked to them about you know, what we were doing. And, you know, I was like, would you rather the cows live indoors in small little filthy, you know, pens that they can't move around in? Like this is, this is, it's momentary discomfort for sort of a, a, a really he- a healthier, better way of life. Yeah. It's a really, it's very, it's funny. It's a, it's both extremely advanced, uh, veterinary technology. And it, at the end of the day boils down to, uh, grabbing a 250 pound calf and trying to wrestle it onto the ground, uh, <laughs> which is, boy, let me tell you, if, if all goes well, it's a well-oiled machine. If one of those, if one of those little guys gets back up on his feet at the wrong time, it gets messy real fast. Um, so this episode, yeah, a lot of cowboy shit, a lot of pretty incredible cowboy shit, which is very, very exciting to see. Uh, also the reintroduction of our dear friend Piper Parabo as summer. And I actually had the opportunity to to chop it up with Piper a little bit. Before we get into all of that, we're going to step aside really fast, so don't go away. CBS.
TBS Friday and streaming on Paramount Plus. Cal Fire's coming to you. Don't miss TV's hottest show, Fire Country. This is a high complexity rescue with a low chance of success. Follow the rules. Can you shave another day off your sentence? Critics call it explosive and pure entertainment. I'm a fella. I'm not fit to be anything else. You're not an inmate. You're a firefighter. Bring it on. Fire Country. New episode Friday, 9, 8 central on CBS and now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Uh, we feel so, so, so lucky to have with us, uh, to have with us in the house today. Uh, you know her as Summer Higgins on Yellowstone, as long as many other characters through a long, storied, fascinating career that I can't wait to dig into. Thank you so, so, so much for being here. We're here with Piper Parabo. How you doing? Hi, Jeff. Good. How are you? Great. I feel so honored. Thank you so much for joining us. That's so nice of you to say. It's so nice to be here. So episode, season five, episode four, we get the triumphant return of Summer. It's been a year, you know, a year has passed since the last time we saw Summer. She's spent a year in jail. Because of Beth Dutton. Because Let's be clear of, about because of who. That's exactly right. Piper, uh, Summer was a sort of a, a little bit of collateral damage in an elaborate scheme of Beth's uh, in season four and really suffered the consequences of it. Um, and it's it's a little ironic because Beth starts this episode out in jail. Beth starts uh, <laughs> season five, episode four out in jail. She does like one night and she That's throws bullshit. in the Isn't towel. is that bullshit? It's bullshit. Summer did a I year. Know. I know. Summer's harder than she looks. You know what I mean? She may not have red hair, but she can hang. <laughs> she really is. She's remarkably resilient. And shes it's a fascinating <laughs> character. And you'll please forgive me because this is a sort of pet fascination of mine is the sort of the ways in which the narrative of the show and the story of the show line up with and don't line up with reality, the sort of right. fact of making the show, who we are as people and where that does and doesn't intersect with these characters. So Summer, you know, comes into Yellowstone like a tornado in season four. She's this this force of nature that we're introduced to in season four. And in practical terms, what that means is that you, Piper, are coming into this show. You're coming into this world that has been well-established. There's a sort of whole, you know, it, it's like showing up at a new school, you know? Yeah, exactly. As like a junior in high school, not like as a freshman. You know, everybody knows each other. They know each other's like backstory secrets. There's a lot of like cafeteria talk that's already happened. And Summer knows nothing. Like Summer decides to fuck with the Duttons on day one, which like you wouldn't do if you went to this high school. You know, she picked the wrong family. You know what I mean? Exactly. All the cool kids are sitting together at lunch <laughs> and Summer shows up. And what I think is amazing is and a very distinct challenge is not only does Summer show up in season four of this behemoth show, she also shows up in a place of power with a lot of, with a tremendously secure sense of self and a sort of confidence and assertive energy. She doesn't limp into her first day at school exactly like you just said. She comes in picking fights. She comes in with right. a really sort of strong moral compass and a belief system that she, that is you know, impervious to you know th these these huge huge forces that are attacking hers, and that is also the case for you, obviously, for you, Piper. Like you, 
joined the fourth season of this show as a sort of newcomer to the show, but not, but, but as a sort of veteran and expert actor as like an actor with an incredible, distinct, unique, you know, impressive career of your own prior to joining the show. So will you just talk a little bit about your career prior to Yellowstone for folks who are meeting you now for the first time? Will you just give us a little bit of your, your background? Sure. Sure. Um, I'm an actor. Uh, I'm originally from Dallas. I grew up in New Jersey and then I went to college for acting in Ohio, Appalachian, Ohio. Um, and then, and now I've been working for like 20, uh, 25 years. Um, I did a bunch of movies. Like when I was young, I did this movie called Coyote Ugly about girls dancing on a bar. Uh, or if you're not as old as me, maybe you saw me in a movie called Cheaper by the Dozen, where I'm like one of a family of 12. And Steve Martin's my dad. So cool. Um, and I did a show for five years called Covert Affairs, where I played a spy and we traveled all over the world. We actually filmed in 35 countries. So I, I had done a bunch of stuff, um, but I, I had, and I had actually worked, I, and I actually, you know, did a, um, action movie with Cole Hauser. So I knew Cole Hauser from the old days and, um, what a badass he is. And so actually in some ways he, he and Kelly are two of the most, he and, he and Kelly are two. I know, I knew from stories, um, how kind of what an elegant, uh, gentleman, uh, Kevin Costner was. So although I'm intimidated by his talent, I wasn't like physically afraid. Whereas if you've never met Kelly or Cole, <laughs> maybe you're like a little bit like, Ugh. um, but I knew like I'd, I'd worked with Cole before, so I kind of knew what I was getting into. So I just had Kelly to, to, to contend with. And um, I love Cole Hauser, man. Like we worked together on this um, action movie called The Cave, where we're cave explorers. <laughs> He's the head of the cave exploring team. And like in Romania, we had a real ball. I mean, he's a real, um, you know, he's a real tornado. And so it was fun to be around Cole again and fun to have like a, a good buddy on the show when I started out. Oh yeah. That's crucial. When you're the new kid at school, it's amazing. If somebody else transferred there first, you know, you've had yeah. Cole. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. You've got your friend at the school already. Yeah. He's a good friend to have. What it also sounds like. So it sounds like you have an incredible, um, back, an incredibly varied sort of background. So you said you were born in Dallas, you're born in Texas, yep. you yep. grow up and go to school in New Jersey and then to college in Ohio. So sort of from the beginning, you've been traveling and experiencing all these different slices of life around the country. Yeah, and I think that's also what acting is too. They don't really prepare you for that when you're in school, but it's really about you have to learn how to live on the road. I mean, you know that. Like, I've lived out of my suitcase for the last 10 months of this year. So it's like you really have to be um, – you know, able to take care of yourself and like, you know, bring along your books and your granola bars and, and your tequila and get going. Yeah, exactly. Just the essentials, granola yeah. bars and tequila. You also said, right. wow, Covert Affairs, you guys filmed in 35 countries. Yeah, that, that actually is where I met my husband, Stephen Kay, who is one of the executive producers and directors of Yellowstone. Uh, he was hired um, as the producing director on Covert Affairs. And on the first season, we had only shot uh, all the like foreign shoots on green screen, which kind of looks like shit. And Stephen was like, let's skinny this down to like an indie film and go to Hong Kong and go to Istanbul and go to Buenos Aires and Paris and Berlin and Stockholm. And, like it was fun, really fun and fun to do it together. 
Yeah, what a beautiful thing. That's amazing. So it was a sort of family, that that's a really, especially if you're going to travel, like you said, it's better to travel, it's better to live a nomad lifestyle with somebody else. With, a with somebody of, else. Yeah. A center of gravity good that to travels share with you. Yeah. And what an amazing, so, so I guess a, a theme that I've returned to over and over again in this podcast and just in my life for the past five years of working on this show is that for me, Working on Yellowstone has been, more than anything else, such a huge sort of learning experience. It's been stepping into this life that I never would have seen otherwise. I had never set foot in Montana. I had never no, set I. foot in Texas. Yeah. And so we, we are entering these worlds in the same way that perhaps Summer is on the show. So she comes there with a very keen sense of self already. But the thing that I, I really find... Um, fascinating about the character that makes her a lot more than just a sort of archetype or a stereotype is her willingness to listen to and engage with the ideas that she's presented with at the Dutton Ranch. Yeah, I think that's what, um, I think John Dutton's commitment to his ideals and his willingness to to throw down for what he believes in is kind of what they initially connect on. And um I think that's really cool. You know, when I first met Taylor Sheridan, he and I don't have all the same um, beliefs, but, um, you know, we had a beer together and talked about um, movies and stories and the world and what we think is working and what we think isn't. And, and I can really respect a guy who's willing to work, not just fight for what he wants, but work hard for what he wants. You know, there's a lot of like talking and listening that has to happen. That's not always the train station, you know what I mean? And so um, I think that's kind of what, what John and Summer have in common too. Yeah, that's a, that's a really um, smart way to put it and a fascinating lens through which to examine that relationship and the way it mirrors the real life process of working on the show. Because the, the sort of seeming incompatibility of people like Summer and John Dutton which is played for humor on the show, but it's also yeah. sort of at the heart of the conflict there, you know? And we see how it drives Beth absolutely fucking crazy. And yeah. and, and part of that might be that they're very, they, they have a very similar commitment and passion applied to two completely different sort of ideological <laughs> like frameworks. Totally. And I think that Beth, I think Beth and Summer, if they could listen to each other, would get along a lot better. You know what I mean? It's just that John and Summer listen to each other and Beth just pulls a kitchen knife on somebody. Yeah. Beth's not quite ready to have that conversation yet. That feels like it's a testament to John's maturity. John doesn't, yeah. John doesn't get defensive. His, you know, he doesn't really have anything to prove. He seems very secure in his sense of self. Whereas Beth is, you know. <laughs> Beth pulls a kitchen knife before she knows who you are. Yeah. In most cases, you know, in most cases, Beth pulls a kitchen knife, which is absolutely, uh, you know, it's, it's what we love about her too. That's um, one of the things I love about her. Yeah. And I, I think a fascinating sort of, you know, mirror here is in order to make Yellowstone, a bunch of us who come from all over the place. You know, I'm. Fr I grew up in Iowa, and now I live in New I York City. You you were born in Texas, grew up in New Jersey, went to school in Ohio, and now you find yourself yeah. in Montana. A bunch of us from all over the place, from a lot of different backgrounds, um, show up in Montana, tasked with the tremendous responsibility of of you know, telling this story, 
And the the common ground we often find is a shared passion, a shared commitment to craft, a shared sort of um, appreciation and respect and willingness to listen. And like film sets are such a funny environment. There's so many people from yeah. different backgrounds with different skills, different personality types, like the kind of personality. It's really yeah, it's really collaborative art film. It's not like when you're a painter and you can just stand there and you can begin when you want and end when you want. Like it's very collaborative making a TV show. But I think one of the things that's so fortunate for us is that we make it in Montana. And when I'd never been to Montana until this show, and when you see, I mean, I'm a I fly fish, so when I finally saw the Bitterroot River for the first time, I can really understand what people are defending and standing up for. You know what I mean? Those rivers and that that country, that part of our country is really rare and beautiful. And so of course people would stand strong for something like that. Whether you're native and you're talking about your tribal lands or whether you're a rancher and you're talking about your ranch, I can really understand where the conflict comes from because who wouldn't defend something as kind of awesome as Montana? Do you fly fish? No. Oh, come with us, bro. I have, I, I think I... You know, this—it's a lifestyle. It's a sort of comprehensive, holistic lifestyle. You're describing having done it since you were a kid. It's too late for me, Piper. I missed it. No, bro, no, no, no. I only learned to fly fish like a few years ago, and and I I did it with um, Greg, the first AD, not this past season, but the one before Gilman. Yeah, yeah. He had rented his house on an arm of the Bitterroot River. And so he invited, Stephen had to go over there and um, work out schedule for an episode. And Stephen was like, we should come. It's right on the right on the route. And so we brought our rods. And then when they finished their meeting, we took six packs and it was July by then. So you could just put on shorts and sneakers and walk into the river. You know, you're at like thigh deep and tie your six pack to the tree in the river where you're fishing and you fish. And then when you get thirsty, your beer's already cold, bro. It's in the river. So, I mean, then I, after that, I was like, wait, why are we living on the river? But come fishing with us. It's so fun. That's amazing. I think of all the characters on Yellowstone who the audience would expect to be serious fly fishers, um, you're going to surprise them summer. and you're going to delight them. Because that's amazing. that also just shows something that I admire so much that I aspire to is to go to these new places and fully immerse yourself, as you're describing, fully immerse yourself wherever you are. I think that's an act of respect. It's an act of love for a place to have the sort of courage and vulnerability to say, I'm gonna fucking wade out into that river. That That's a beautiful, it's a depth of experience. And I think something that we're, you know, a, a question about this lifestyle, about this sort of nomadic lifestyle, <laughs> is we get a breadth of experience. We go to a lot of places. I've I've stayed in hotels in a lot of cities. Um, yeah. But what you're describing is also a depth of engagement. It's a sort of meaningful, rich, full engagement with a place. Um, and that's that's beautiful. I just admire that so much. Uh, thanks. I I think that. Um, when you do that kind of engagement, like, you know, when you fly fish, the fly that you're putting on the line, you have to know what time of year and what time of day it is because the, the 
larvae, the like insect eggs on the surface of the water and the bugs at different times of day. That's how you're choosing what fly you're using. So you have to go to a fly shop and who you really want to talk to is the old guys who've lived there for a long time who could say like, mm, it's terrestrial season, you might want to switch to this or purple haze is really hitting right now. But by going to the fly shop and talking to the old guys about fly fishing, yeah, you learn about fly fishing, but even better, you learn about the old guys, you know, and they're saying like, we, you know, we get our game processed at this place, or we get our beer over here, or you know what I mean? Like, oh, well, there's a fundraiser for the school fair, it's going to happen at the rodeo grounds. Like, that's how you kind of get into the community is like some activity that the place is known for. Or at least that's I how I get in. That That is truly remarkable. And I, I forgive me for once again, commenting that what you're describing there is also sort of the kind of openness and willingness to engage that Summer exhibits in her sort of willingness to listen to John Dutton, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, totally. Totally. I and really want you to come fly fishing with us next season. I will fuck it up. You'll you, the, the sort of beautiful tranquil we'll you time you're describing. I'm going to it's all I've ever done is ruin people are so nice to me. They say, "Oh, come along and you know, have a good time. And all I ever do is fuck up somebody's perfectly pleasant afternoon. So I, I'll have, spare you that. <laughs> have you ever read that book, A River Runs Through It? That yes. little novella? Yeah. Yeah, I read it in I Montana. Mean, any, yeah. Yeah. Any Yellowstone fan that's like between seasons that needs a like a taste, I feel like that's like a good hold you over. But once you read that book, I don't know how you could not fly fish. Okay, we're going to step aside real quick. So don't go away. We'll be right back. Um, to step away from the show for a minute, will you just t- is there anything you've learned or experienced through your time in Montana that's become important to you? Like how has, you know, we've, we endeavor not to change the state in our participation there. How has the state changed you? There are two, two big ways. One is I was really unaware of the indigenous communities and the native communities in that part of the country. And um, Mo brings plenty who's on the show with us. Um, he is the liaison between Yellowstone and the native communities in Montana. And so being a friend of his um, is a fast way to sort of learn about all that's going on and um, you know, how we interact and with those communities. And then also I didn't know about cutting on horseback. You know, that was, I I knew how to ride Western, but I had never even heard the word cutting. And so Jake Reams, who's in the bunkhouse, is also a great, you know, horseman rider. And so he started teaching me the season in Utah, I think that I went, I went, it might have even been, before I started, he started teaching me how to cut. And that kind of work, working horseback riding, I didn't really know anything about. And I think that's really cool. So like when we were all down in Texas for the reshoots um, and we were with at Taylor's place, just like hearing people talk about cutting and the roper boots. And like, there's just like a whole language of working cowboys that doesn't always get into the full, you know, like in a, in a show that's less, accurate than Yellowstone. They don't really get into all the, like Yellowstone does get into all that because Taylor wants it to be so authentic. But I think until Yellowstone, I hadn't heard all these words about a work, how cowboys really work. It was yeah, like and, guitars and like they're sleeping with like a pot of beans, <laughs> but I didn't really know like what they did. 
You know what I, I mean? do sleep with a pot of beans every night as part well, of my sort like, of process. In movies, cowboys like all have a guitar and then they're all like heating up a pot of beans din, din, and then they're din, like by themselves. Din, din. Yeah, and the stars and they're crying and they like sleep on their coat. And I was like, that's beautiful really too. Think that's a yeah, hell of a, I'm an option. What you just nice said. <laughs> um, I yeah, and it's funny because Taylor talks about how he Taylor. You know, there there is a lot of minutia in the show. There's a lot of these sort of details yeah. about this world that a lot of people, myself included, were not familiar with prior to Yellowstone. One thing I admire about Taylor is that he also writes it from an insider's perspective. There's not a ton of explanation. You'll see something no. happening. And he's writing it for the folks that already know what's happening. Like Taylor yeah. is writing these jokes and these sort of, and you know, he he's exploring this world, the cutting horse world, the reigning world, performance horses, cow horses, roping, wrangling, rodeo. He is exploring that from inside of it, as opposed yeah. to starting from the outside. You know, it's not it's not necessarily an initiation in the way he's writing it. He's writing it as an expert. You know. Yeah, he. It's almost like he's writing it for his at his level, and you're welcome to to follow along if you can keep up. Yeah, which, I is, which leads. Kinda, I prefer that in a way as an audience. Well, and as a participant, it, yeah, it's a very fun thing yeah, to be treated like an expert. He's writing it for experts, and so you go, "Oh shit, I better figure it out." And that's our, you know, our characters, both your character and mine, started on this show as outsiders. You know, outsiders. Yeah, I remember who, when they taped you to the saddle. Yeah. And just throughout, like for the last five years, there's been so many things. I'll read the script and I'll be like, oh man, I'm, I think I'm supposed to know what the fuck that means. There's so many names in the script. There's so many like pieces of like horse, you know, various horse, you know, periphera, like like little bits. Yeah. yeah that I'm supposed to understand what they mean. And I'm still, I'm still and catching up go. to it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so, so yeah, amazing. I mean, what what an incredible thing. I'm also amazed to hear that you're of all the people in the cast who would the audience might expect to have gotten into cutting and to be sort of practicing like in this kind of you, you are somebody who even though that's not necessarily asked of you on the show, it's so clear that you have chosen to like dig deep into this stuff and sort of learn as much as you can about this world. And I think that's uh, incredibly admirable. So Piper, when did you first meet Taylor Sheridan? How did you come to work on the show? Talk us through. Uh, talk us through that. So it's sort of uh, a little bit roundabout, but my husband Stephen Kay, um, who you know, who who's an EP on the show and also directs a bunch. Oh wait, he's running in. Hold on. Say hi. Oh wait, like I'm on my earbuds. Surprise guest. Supr this is surprise like WWE. Guest. It's Here, like there's a fight going on, and it, oh wait a second, that's Stephen K's intro music. Boom, 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 boom. You're coming down the ramp. <laughs> Thank you. I was gonna ride in. Yeah. Oh, in the house. <laughs> yeah, it's weird. Stephen, I hope you'll join us. I hope you'll join us sometime uh, to talk about you your experience of all this yeah, and contradict I mean, Piper's experience. It's yeah, it's creepy that you wouldn't have invited me, but I know it's cool. It's cool. The producers, the producers just, have tried to keep you away from this yeah. for so long. I've been fighting to get you on the show. The producers, yeah. they know how they think you're you a live wire. Yeah, yeah, you are. Crazy. He is a live wire. That's actually true. Yeah. My man is baking that's a gluten-free pie right now. If that's not, oh, no. you know, anarchic exactly. chaos, I don't know what is. For all the kids, this is a little something for the kids. Oh, sweet. Yeah. All right, brother. Well, I'm letting you guys talk. I don't want to, you know, horn in on her ear time. It's great to hear from you, man. Uh, we'll we'll get you in another time. 
We'll get I to it another Jeff. time. Yeah. He says, I love you. Love you, you Stephen. Oh. Or okay, now, <laughs> now that he's gone, Piper, now right. that he's gone. He, he, he directed Taylor. Wait, boo, was it Sons or Shield? He directed, even my husband directed Taylor Sheridan in Sons of Anarchy when Taylor was an actor. And they became, oh, Pi's got to come up. Uh, and so they became friends. And um, when Taylor started writing, actually, Stephen read an early draft of Hell or High Water when it was called Comancheria. Um, and st they started talking about writing. And so then Stephen came in to direct in season two. And I think the reason Taylor trusted him, it's just my guess, but because he knew Stephen already as a director. And uh, anyway, so that's how it starts. And then, um, and even though they're different, they're kind of similar in a way too, you know, they're kind of old school dudes, old school men. And then, um, and then I came to visit Steven in Utah when you guys were filming and Taylor and Nick had us over the house for dinner. And I had just been arrested in DC um, for protesting the nomination of Brett Kavanaugh to the Supreme Court. I went, I interrupted Trust, Chuck Grassley in the Senate Judiciary hearing and protest. Like there was like 300 women that day that were all, you can sit in a Senate Judiciary hearing, you can sit for like 10 minutes and then the next 20 people online, like the 20 people are, it's not that big of a hearing room. So 20 people are ushered out and then 20 more people get to sit in and listen to the hearing. And so all these women who, uh, mostly women who uh, didn't want Kavanaugh on the Supreme Court had organized to get online. And so I was, had been online like since pre-dawn waiting. And, um, and then you, you stand up and you start saying why you oppose the nomination and you're arrested for civil disobedience. And I was arrested with hundreds of women that day, but um, that had just happened. And then I flew to Utah to have dinner with Stephen and, and Nick and, and Taylor. And it came up at dinner and Taylor was like, wait, what? And, and I started saying, oh, I was arrested at uh, civil disobedience. And he was like, go through the whole thing. Like, who calls you to go there? Like, what's your goal? What's the security like? What kind of jail? How much, what's the bail? Like he wanted, all of a sudden the writer was there, you know? And he, like dinner kind of screeches to a halt and he's got 800 questions about when you're arrested in a city in America on civil disobedience. And so, and then he was like, fucking politics and fucking DC and you know he gets like on his check and um but it was cool and even though I don't know how he feels about Kavanaugh that didn't come up he was more interested in kind of the story of it and um and then about I don't know like a month or so later he said to Stephen I'm gonna write her a part about a woman who gets arrested for protest and that's where summer came from wow so you actually got arrested as part of a protest action went to Utah, had dinner with Taylor. You guys, he dug into the details of it and then created the role of Summer based right. around a sort of similar experience, a, a woman being arrested for a protest action. Right. It was cool because actually that was the first time I'd ever been arrested for civil disobedience. And so I knew all that stuff because I was so nervous to get arrested. I didn't like I wrote Steven's number on my arm in Sharpie in case they took everything. Like, how do I get, you know, how do I, what if I get scared? I can't remember my husband's phone number. I had bail, bail money, cash in one pocket and then bail money in case somebody else didn't have money in the other pocket and like the cell phone, the battery, 
my number, because they take almost everything, you know, and I, my ID, but I was really, st- I'm like a Girl Scout, you know, I was like really prepared to get arrested. <laughs> and so Taylor was really into that. That's amazing. What, what tremendous courage. And then also what a sort of incredible seed for this character and, and what it also like incredibly sort of, you know, summer has been, I, I have no doubt that some people listening to this, um, you know, big fans of Beth, you know, it, it may not be, maybe people are not <laughs> fans of summer. I know they're not. And like, I, I sort of admire Taylor even more because you know that the, a lot of the Yellowstone crowd is going to be like, who's this bitch? You know what I mean? This like coastal, uh, environmentalist, blah, blah, blah. But also it's like, you know, Yellowstone needs conflict. That's what makes it so good is all the warring factions. And, and because I really care about our civil rights, our right to vote, um, right to bodily autonomy, right to marriage. It's so fun that a great American writer wrote me the part of an activist. Like it, that's the only time it's ever done that, you know, and come together like that. That's fucking that's, rad. It's incredible. And it also, I think it's, it's incredible. A thing of Taylor's, which is that, um, you know, he, he writes these characters that maybe could be easily dismissed um, under certain circumstances or some por- some percentage of the audience almost wants to easily dismiss. They want to say exactly what you just said. Oh, this lady from the coast, this, you know, she's coming in here. She, yeah. What does she know? Or a character like, for instance, Rainwater in season one, who the audience might have wanted to conveniently easily dismiss. And then Taylor sticks with these characters over time. They grow more and more complicated. You come to see their perspective. The characters themselves are listening and learning. And, and sort of, it, it really helps, I think, um, challenge the kind of good guy, bad guy paradigm that is so reductive. And it helps to make all of these characters. I think that Summer's role on the show, Summer has herself, you know, our relationship to her has grown and changed and will continue to grow and change. But she also helps, she, she's changed John Dutton. She's changed Beth. Like coming into contact with these people with differing viewpoints, differing ideologies, different exper- differing experiences coming into contact with them gives everybody an opportunity to grow and learn and sort of become more complicated than just these cardboard cutout, black and white, very easily dismissed good guys and bad guys, you know? Yeah, I think that's so cool. And like, that's like, you know, maybe what we could do as a nation. A hundred percent. Listen to each other. If John Dutton yeah. and Summer can listen to each other, can find some common ground, <laughs> then uh, so can we. You know, if people from such John Dutton and Summer can have a one night stand, maybe all of us can. <laughs> That's what America needs. America needs to have a one big messy one night stand. One big one night stand. Guess yeah. What? Nobody else and- cares on the Supreme Court then. <laughs> <laughs> Exactly. Relax. Get a little bit of the tension out. Um, it yeah. also, I think, you know, as as the season moves forward, I'm very excited for the audience to get to see more of Summer. It feels like the episode we've just seen, episode four, is a little sneak peek of what's to come. Bro, some- <laughs> it's just the beginning. It's just the beginning. And I can't, I know I'm not allowed to say what happens, but it gets so hardcore. I mean, people are going to go nuts, dude. I'm it's so, so out of control. I literally sent a picture to my mom after one day of shooting, and I'm like, I can't tell you everything, but this is happening. Mom was like, oh my God. Like, so. 
so crazy what happens. Mom, it gets it gets intense. Mom, just mom, get it gets ready. Intense. Prepare yourself. I also you Be know ready to cover your eyes, mom. I have to warn anytime some shit happens to Jimmy, I have to warn my whole family really explicitly. I have to be like, okay. But I, you know, I don't know about you. I'm always playing these characters who, generally speaking, deserve to get the shit kicked out of them and then do. So my poor grandma, it's like she's got, my grandma has seen everything conceivably bad happen to me. She's watched me get stabbed, like thrown off cliffs, exploded, shot. Sorry, grandma. My grand, my grandma's not with us anymore. But my grandma, I when I had an episode of television come on, she would invite like her um, older lady friends to come over to watch the show, and she, she couldn't remember everything. But I would call her like half an hour before the show comes on the air, and she'd be, and I'd be like, okay, so this is the bad guy. This is like the guy I'm gonna have an affair with. This is the criminal. And so she would like be like, okay, I got it. And then she liked to watch the show with her friends. But be, when some character comes, she would. Well, I wouldn't trust him because she likes to know everything. <laughs> oh my God, you were off. feeding her. You were feeding her the inside info. That's incredible. She to be the insider. It's so cute. That's so funny. It must be so hard to do this podcast and know all the secrets and like not slip. You know what's, what makes it a lot easier? What? Never setting foot in Montana one time this whole season. You know, it really makes God, it a right. lot you... easier. <laughs> That's crazy. That's crazy. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Wow. So it's it's been way easier to keep the uh, keep a handle on the spoilers when Jimmy is right because uh, you didn't see it. You didn't see it go down. I didn't Bro, see it go some down. Crazy shit goes down this season. Some crazy. I mean, crazy. I think that's an amazing place to leave it. I think that's an amazing place okay. to uh, to tease our audience. There is some amazing shit going down, Piper. I am so grateful for your time we all are thank oh, you so thank so much you. thanks for talking with me it was really fun what i'm gonna make you come joy. fly fish with me i will fun. yeah i'll, I'll okay. ruin at least one perfectly pleasant afternoon <laughs> you bring the six pack and nothing will be ruined As always, we appreciate you spending time with us here. It is such an honor. We love talking to you. We love hearing from you. This whole thing is kind of an extension of conversations that we see you having on social media. So make sure you subscribe so you never miss a new episode of the official Yellowstone podcast. You can listen to the official Yellowstone podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Friday and streaming on Paramount Plus. Cal Fire's coming to you! Don't miss TV's hottest show, Fire Country. This is a high complexity rescue with a low chance of success. Follow the rules, then you shave another day off your sentence. Critics call it explosive and pure entertainment. I'm a fella. I'm not fit to be anything else. You're not an inmate, you're a firefighter. Bring it on. Fire Country. New episode Friday, 9 8 Central on CBS and now streaming on Paramount Plus.